As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This episode of the Bowery Boys is brought to you by Burrows of the Dead. Burrows of the Dead specializes in macabre walking tours of New York City, unearthing Gotham's strange, dark, and haunted histories all year round. Use offer code BOWERY19 for 20% off their brand new walking tour, Frights and Phantoms of Flushing. Visit burrowsofthedead.com for more information and to buy tickets now. This episode is also brought to you by City Running Tours. Are you looking for a unique way to explore New York City? Want to stay fit and have some fun? Join the team at City Running Tours and sweat and sightsee on a guided running tour of New York City. The City Running Tours team is passionate about the city and loves to explore it through running. Join one of their scheduled routes or customize your own personal running experience. These sweat and sightsee tours are the ideal way to discover New York's iconic neighborhoods. Julie from Calgary said, This was the best part of my trip. I learned so much about the city and felt like I was running with an old friend. These tours are also perfect for your next corporate or social event. Visit cityrunningtours.com slash New York City to book your city running tour today. Plus, use the coupon code BOWERYBOYS, one word, to receive 10% off your next tour. The Bowery Boys, episode 301, Haunted Houses of Old New York. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And welcome to the unlucky 13th annual Bowery Boys Halloween Ghost Story Podcast. Certainly one of our favorite shows of the year to to record. And we're always looking for a, a new theme mm-hmm. every year. This year's theme is Haunted Houses of Old New York. Now, since we have recorded ghost story podcasts since 2007, we have explored urban legends and supernatural tales associated with dozens of places in New York City. And many of them have been homes. For this episode, we are going to look exclusively at the places where people rest their heads at night, perhaps uneasily. And perhaps eternally. But these are all houses that are still around today. You can't visit all of their interiors. Um, However, you can at least walk by each of the places that we're going to talk about today. On today's show, we'll be visiting houses from the 19th and 20th century, and we may even go back further than that. I will be taking us all the way back to the 17th century. We're going really old school spooks in that story. Now, as always, these ghost stories are derived from actual legends and fables and tales and rumors that we've taken from New York newspapers, from folklore, and even some from the history books themselves. 
So we are, in a way, looking for historical accuracy in these, or, or at least trying to find the history behind mm-hmm. these really old ghost stories. If this is the first show of ours that you've ever heard, this is not our normal shtick. We are not normally, you know, like paranormal New York historians. No. But as is our annual custom, we do decorate our studio to get ourselves in the mood so that we can be better storytellers. Tom, I'm going to describe the scene here this year. Well, wedged in here next to the laptop and amongst the microphones, Greg has put his signature box of peeps. Yes, these are ghosts, ghostly peeps. This year, ghost peeps. Um, We have a couple plates of pumpkin glazed donuts, a new addition to this year. We have a little hanging ghost with a scary face hanging from the curtain here. Scary doesn't really do that justice. It's it's mortifying. Now in now in shows past, we have had our dear friend Cheryl Crow, yeah, the wh- Raven here. Wh- where is Cheryl? Well, she's taken ill. She's got the bird flu. However, taking her place in this show, we have a new exciting guest star. Tom, would you like to describe what I'm holding? <laughs> Greg is holding up a, a spider. Um, it looks like it was crafted by somebody. What is this? Did you make this? It's a it's a large spider. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, I didn't make this. Uh, her name is Liza Spinelli. She does have the legs for the stage. Eight of them, in fact. <laughs> those Think are, of the fossey she could do. Those aren't legs. Those are haunted jazz hands. But now, listener, join us as we visit four haunted houses of old New York. All right, Greg, where are you starting this haunted party? Well, there's so many different kinds of houses in New York City, right? Uh, From walk-up tenement apartments to lavish penthouse suites to old 17th, 18th century houses to brand new glass condominiums. But I thought we would start this story with a good old-fashioned Fifth Avenue brownstone, although one that's seen better days. The address in question here is 226 Fifth Avenue. That is just a block north of Madison Square Park between 26th and 27th Street. Very close to Tin Pan Alley, by the way, but that would be today's Nomad. Nomad, yeah. If you will. Yeah, and I guess one could say that the spirit that I'm about to talk about is a bit of a nomad. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's the location. I'm turning your attention to July 3rd, 1953, and to a little something that they used to call a classified ad. (laughs) You mean the the sort of printed advertisements that would appear (laughs) in newspapers and get ink on your fingers? Exactly. There were pages and pages long. It was Craigslist, Tinder, and Zillow, all rolled up in one, sometimes literally rolled up with your morning newspaper. That's right, with a rubber band. New Yorkers perusing the classified ads on that day, July 3rd, 1953, would have seen something rather unsettling. It was an ad for a sublet, a five-room artist studio, perfect for a painter or a photographer, 
The ad went on to describe one very strange feature of the studio. Quote, an attic dark room with ghost. They advertise the ghost in the classified? Yes, with ghost. But this isn't just any ghost, Tom. For the name of this story is The Green and the Gray. Oh, let's rewind a second here. You're you're talking about Fifth Avenue between 26th and 27th. What do we know about this townhouse? This was built in 1853. It was a five-story brownstone. Today, it's covered in a cement stucco. So doesn't look quite like it did. Not to mention that at the time of recording now, it's covered in scaffolding on top of it. So it's impossible to picture what it might have looked like. But it was built in the 1850s. So around this time in the 1840s and 50s and 60s, I mean, this area would become very hot. This would be sort of like the center of the social universe. So this had been built as a single family home, right? But by the 1890s, as society moves up north on the island, a cast iron storefront is installed here on the building and the upper floors are turned into separate flats. So then by the 1930s, this building is about as average as they come and really modest. Even today, it's, it's, it's easy to overlook. It's kind of the least interesting building on the block. Now, flash forward to 1950 to the owner of this building, a flamboyant figure by the name of Captain Hasselt Davis. A captain? A captain. <laughs> a Captain Hasselt? He, in fact, Tom, would be one of these guys, to so picture him in your head, one of these guys who would be oiled up on a like an old Pulp Fiction, you know what those like oil paintings? Oh, oh uh, this the, took a turn the, I wasn't from expecting. From the 30s and 40s. Hardy. A very hardy man. He was an explorer and adventure writer and lived all around the world, including the South Pacific and areas of Africa. He wrote a series of books that I would say are the definition of dated literature about these particular areas of the world. I would pursue them at your own risk. (laughs) Books with such titles as Islands Under the Wind and Sorcerer's Village, which was published around the time of our tale here in the 1950s. He even wrote a book, Tom, called Bonjour Hangover, which was a whole book of bad advice about drinking. This was the 1950s. Yeah. (laughs) After all, this was like the two martini lunch. Well, he preferred whiskey, actually. In the 1940s, he was in a series of Hiram Walker whiskey ads with the slogan, Man, this is whiskey, while Davis is in full safari regalia. Okay, so have I painted a picture of Mr. Captain Davis here? It's oozing (laughs) testosterone. So sometime in the 1950s, Davis purchased this townhouse at 226 Fifth Avenue. He had a most unusual apartment in the upper floors. Here's a description. Quote, his home is one of these fantastic and colorful apartments only an explorer or collector would own. A mixture of comfortable studio and museum, full of excitement and personality, and offering more than a touch of the unseen. Two wild jungle cats completed the atmospheric picture. Hold on. He had... He had tigers in his apartment? Two stuffed in this apartment studio. Oh, they were stuffed. Okay. (laughs) Yes. But because he traveled all the time, he often sublet his apartment to other people. But some of the tenants that he rented the apartment to began experiencing some very strange phenomena in the house. Residents began feeling very ill at ease all of a sudden. 
hearing footsteps on the upper floors when there was nobody else on the property. According to Davis, other residents who stayed here at his apartment began seeing a haze in the air, like a film in the air, that took on a greenish tint, almost chemical-looking. But when the person would approach this green mist, it would simply float towards the wall and then disappear. But the most unusual activity seemed to come from the upper floor in the attic. From the, from the attic? Is that like an is that an attic that you can see from the street? Believe it or not, you can. Because the windows on this building are very curious. The higher you go up, the smaller the windows get. None of the windows are of the same size. And those on the very top floor are the smallest. On one occasion, one of the subletters reported seeing something very strange from that top attic window. They saw a hand slowly emerging from the window. A green hand. I mean, it was bright enough that it could be seen from the sidewalk. I mean, they were staring up and seeing this appendage sticking out of the window. Yet, it appeared that the window was not actually open. And there was no one that lived up there. Almost as soon as the subletter saw the hand, though, it was quickly snatched away. Other people heard more disturbing sounds from that particular attic room. A sudden thump and a creaking and an aching of floorboards, despite the fact that no one was there. Now, when Davis heard these reports, he surmised himself something very ominous was happening here. That that sound that these people were hearing was the sound of somebody hanging themselves in the attic and that whatever or whoever inhabited 226 Fifth Avenue might have been murdered or they may have killed themselves on that upper floor. Did he actually hear these things himself or is everything... All of his information secondhand, or or thirdhand if you count the green ones That's sticking true. out the window. Davis claims all these ghostly sightings were experienced by others. Being a man of travel, a manly man, perhaps he also didn't want to appear scared or disturbed. So maybe he did experience some of this, which is why he had intimate knowledge of it. So then that brings us back to the classified ad that you mentioned at the beginning of the story, where yes. he mentions he's looking for somebody to rent the place with a ghost. I mean, he, I guess he just decided to be really honest about the whole thing. <laughs> I would love to know, like, what kind of New Yorker answered the ad and actually moved in knowing that there was a ghost there. <laughs> well, I do know of one person who did respond to that ad, and that would be the famed columnist Meyer Berger from the New York Times, who on July 13th, 1953... Never wanted to pass up a good story. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. He ran a column with the headline, Green Ghost Goes with Fifth Avenue Studio Sublet. Quote, The other day, a ghost house came on the market for sublet. Captain Hassel Davis, the explorer, advertised in the Times that the five-room studio, six weary flights up on 226 Fifth Avenue, and hung with hunt trophies could be had with ghost from July 10th 
through November. About the ghost, Captain Davis had no sharp details. Quote, Green ghost, he said, choppily, in the manner of a man anxious to have done with a topic. Green all over. Hanged himself from the studio gallery. Sticks green hand out the attic window sometimes. Leans out, too, and leers. All green. But Meyer did not actually rent the place. No, this was more of just a a slice of life story for all of New Yorkers. And perhaps not surprisingly... If it caught Meyer Berger's attention, it would also catch the attention of New York's most famous paranormal investigator, Hans Holzer. (laughs) You know, Hans does have a way of showing up in each of our ghost story episodes. I'm so glad you brought him in here. Well, Holzer paid a call to Davis, and with his blessing, Holzer arrived at the apartment with recording equipment and a team of researchers, including a psychic and a hypnotist. Not only did they have one session here, they had a total of 17 paranormal sessions with a medium stretching over five months. Well, this the medium, almost instantly under her trance during this first session, she became possessed with an entity who at first was very confused to be inhabiting a female body begin struggling within her own skin here. Then through her lips, the entity began moaning. Began moaning and saying, Curry the horse. They're coming. Curry the horse. It continued to speak, revealing more and more information. This entity claimed it was from Charleston and it lived in a white house. And Hans asked, tell me a little bit about this little room upstairs, for he wanted to get to the bottom of what exactly had happened in the attic. But the entity responded, can I go away from the room? Can I go away from the room? Over the course of additional channelings, it was revealed that this spirit was that of a Confederate Brigadier General named Samuel McGowan, who had fought in the Civil War, was later even elected Associate Justice of the South Carolina Supreme Court in 1879. And Mr. McGowan died in 1894. And why would the spirit of a Southern general be in New York? Well, the ghost claimed that he had actually lived in New York on several occasions here's the ominous part is this ghost this entity through the medium insisted that he had been murdered in 1873 so 21 years before his actual recorded death mr mcgowan was a very bitter and cantankerous gentleman his entire life it's very possible that this man had experienced a truly traumatic experience while he was in New York in 1873. And it was something that so troubled him that he kept returning to this spot after his death. But what they could not explain 
was the depth of detailed information that the ghost issued forth from the, from the medium. All these very specific details about this neighborhood in the 1870s. They later verified that all of the facts that he was sharing with the researchers were true. Finally, after a sitting on November 26th, 1953, the ghost of the Confederate, Samuel McGowan, was never seen again. How mysterious on on many different levels. Mm -hmm. You know, that he even got up here from the South in the first place. Yeah, we don't know why. We don't we don't know the whole story here. What is there today? What's what is in this building? Well, today on the ground floor there is a hair salon that's been there for quite a while. And there are some offices on the floors above that. So Including in this space? Including in the space, yes. And there's a seven eleven next door. In case you need a big gulp after that story. And so that was the ghost of Nomad. I'm going to have a donut now. <laughs> um, I ate nearly an entire donut while you were talking. <laughs> which would explain my silence. But Greg, I would like to take us now much further back. We're going to go back to the 1600s. And we're going to head way out to the southern tip of Staten Island. We're going to visit one of the oldest homes in the city. It's a picturesque stone manor that sits in a wooded park overlooking the water. It's a home with creaking wooden staircases, a cold stone cellar, and it was here that a historic event took place during the Revolutionary War, and where some characters might just be trapped in time, but yet are still stirring about, knocking and roaming and reaching out centuries later. For this is the story of a conference of spirits. <laughs> well, I am grateful that we're going back to the Revolutionary War after my experience with a Confederate soldier from the Civil War. Which side of the war was this ghost on? Well, hold on a second, because this story starts almost a century before the Revolutionary War. We're going to 1680, when a British captain named Christopher Billup constructed this home. Now, I mentioned that this is the southern tip of Staten Island. It's technically the southwest corner of the island, which is today located in the Tottenville neighborhood of Staten Island, overlooking the Arthur Kill River and the lower Raritan Bay and overlooking New Jersey. But this is 1680. It's only, you know, about 16 years after the English had taken over New Amsterdam in 1664. Now, the home that this British captain, Christopher Billup, built here is a rather spacious two-story stone home uh, with a center hallway on each floor, off of which are, are two large rooms on both the first and second floor. Above the second floor is an attic uh, that provided rooms for servants. And in the large stone basement, you would find originally the kitchen and also the cellar. In the 18th century, there was a new addition that was added uh, to the back for an above-ground kitchen. This was refined living with large windows you know, surrounded by old trees. And the home, this home would become known as Bentley Manor. So by the time of the Revolutionary War, so mm -hmm. 1770s here, is this still in the Billup family? Yeah, it would be passed through generations of Billups while the English were still, you know, in charge of New York. During the Revolutionary War, as New York was still under English rule, the house was was owned by fourth-generation Billup, Colonel Christopher Billup, 
who would actually become known as the, quote, Tory colonel, because he was born and raised here. You're making a face. <laughs> a Tory, okay. A Tor- well, because they were, like, prominent loyalists. He would actually lead a force, a loyalist force, in Staten Island called Billups Corps of Staten Island Militia. And it was formed, you know, as kind of a loyalist reaction to the signing of the Declaration of Independence by American-born loyalists in Staten Island. So I can only imagine the tension, the conflicts that they were having here with the New Yorkers, many of whom were patriots. Yeah, and, and still, like, New York is home to many founding fathers. Many people were not terribly fond of Billup. In fact, Billup was captured twice and held by the American rebels. However, something extraordinary happened here in his home on September 11th, 1776. That was an event that became known as the Staten Island Peace Conference. It was um, a rather informal meeting, but extraordinary because it took place between British forces and the rebel Americans just a couple of months here after the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And this and this meeting, this peace conference, was held just a couple weeks after the Battle of Long Island, which we mentioned in our Brooklyn Heights show. And this meeting that took place here in the Billups home on Staten Island was between the British Admiral, Lord Richard Howe, and a trio of patriots, Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, and Edward Rutledge. They would row across in a boat on September 11th from Perth Amboy, New Jersey. They met for three hours. They, they dined on mutton. They drank claret. But of course, they weren't really able to get anywhere with the negotiations because the, the patriots were not willing to pretend like they had never signed the Declaration of Independence. No one was willing to budge. Right. And meanwhile, were the the Billups still here in the vicinity? They had actually turned over their house to soldiers at the time, British soldiers who were using it as a kind of barracks. But then, of course, after the war in 1783, uh, because the Billups here were loyalists, I imagine that they did not feel comfortable coming back and maybe were not even allowed to return. Right. the, The property was confiscated and the Billups would move, like so many others, up to Canada. They moved to New Brunswick. And, and their, their home would be passed on to different owners. It would fall into disrepair. At one point, the basement was actually used as a factory to make rat poison. But fortunately, in time for the, the sesquicentennial anniversary, the 150th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence in 1926, a conference house association was formed they were referring to the home now as the conference house Mm -hmm. and this association was formed to restore the house back to its original condition and to tell its important story in american history so you can visit the conference house today in fact i went there just a few days ago on a kind of gray cool afternoon in october You walk in, you push open the large wooden door into a hallway, and there's a wide wooden staircase just ahead of you to the left. On the walls today, they've hung portraits of Benjamin Franklin and, and other notable Americans. Off to your right is a large dining room, and to the left, a living room and a sitting room. 
and both, as I mentioned, are really, really big rooms with these wide wooden plank floors and upon which they placed furniture from the 18th century. The day that I was there, they had just received three 17th century chairs, and they just placed them in the living room around the fireplace. And from the second floor, there's a smaller staircase that's, that's locked to visitors, but it ascends to the third floor attic, uh, which is where the servants' quarters were. You have described what I must think is a haunted house <laughs> with all of these specific historical details. Uh, there are stories related to the house. Oh, there are several, yeah. There are several hauntings. One of the most famous is, is a story of a former servant girl. Or rather, it's a story of the shrieks and the cries of a servant girl. Shrieks and the cries that have been heard since the 1850s. The legend goes that the girl, who lived up in the servant quarters in the attic, was politically on the side of the rebels, and that she had actually played a part in one of the capturings of her boss, that Tory colonel, Christopher Billup. According to this legend, it was because of the signals to the rebels across the water in New Jersey from this servant girl that they would know that he was at home and he could be captured. Various accounts have her lighting a candle or sending some other signal from her room that could be seen across the water in New Jersey. He was held in prison, but after his release, when he came back home, he was so enraged that he beat her and threw her down the family's winding staircase, which killed her. But since the 1850s, the sounds of mumblings, argument, and shrieks, and tumbling, tumbling down the staircase, can be heard in the house. Workmen even reported hearing these things in the 1920s when they were working on the restoration of the house. So stories associated with her and her spirit have been heard since the 1850s? That's right, yeah. Are there any other type of stories that have come from the conference house? Several stories came out of various visits to the house by a certain Hans Holzer, Greg, who also visited the conference house in the 1960s and 70s. He writes about how the servant girl was seen, how there, there were others who saw a man running up the stairs. There was a former caretaker who told Holzer of spotting a soldier of sticking her hand through the body of a soldier, and many other things. But I wanted to tell you about my experience visiting last week. You didn't have a ghost experience, did you, when you were there? Uh, well, no. I mean, there were... The, the house definitely has a certain energy to it, and I did take some photos, which I texted you, and I think you saw some kind of mysterious orb. But, but I did speak to a former caretaker of the house. Now, I should add that that kitchen space that was added in the back, that has also been converted into uh, caretaker's quarters. So I spoke to a woman named Lee, who has served many times over the years as the, the official caretaker of the conference house. And she told me about some experiences that she had, some supernatural experiences that date back to the 1980s. One time, she was alone in the dining room downstairs. She was just dusting on a fall afternoon. 
There was sun, you know, streaming in through the large windows in the front of the house. She was making her way around the room, dusting, when she heard the sound of a woman singing. And it, somebody was singing loudly. And especially as there was hardly any other noise in the house at the time, and this is a rather secluded area of Staten Island, she just assumed that there was a woman singing on the front porch, on the other side of the door that was closed. So she walked up to the front door, opened it, but nobody was there. But the singing persisted. It just moved. So she followed it outside and around the corner of the house. But the singing always seemed to be just around a corner. She stopped and she decided to really focus on what was being sung. What was this woman singing? But the moment that she focused upon the words, the music stopped. She also told me that she and her husband, now her husband's a teacher and not one to, you know, give much credence to ghost stories. They both had very similar experiences with some sort of apparition. In Lee's case, she was preparing dinner one night back in the caretaker's quarters, bustling about the kitchen, when she felt a hand on her shoulder, a heavy, you know, like real hand touching her shoulder. She said to me, you know when a friend rests their hands on your shoulder? It was that. She stopped and turned around to see who had walked into the kitchen and joined her there, but there was nobody there. And the same thing happened to her husband, a real hand on his shoulder. And I spoke to multiple people in the home who had some experience, you know, with energies in the house. The consensus seemed to be that a house like this, you know, that's existed for more than 300 years has, at the very least, a very special energy to it. It's an energy that, an energy that reflects, in some way, so much of the life that has happened inside its heavy stone walls. It sounds like this is the kind of place that, if you're listening to this show and like this show, this is a place I think you're going to love. It's located in Conference House Park in southern Staten Island. Check out their website, conferencehouse.org, for their hours and hours of their fantastic tours. So we visited a former 19th century brownstone and a 17th century stone mansion. When we get back... We're going to go uptown to a very spirited townhouse, and then we're going to do something that we have never done before in the history of Argo Story Shows. We'll get to all that mystery after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about 
better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. And Greg, before we get back to the show, I just wanted to tell our listeners about another show that we've been listening to called Pessimists Archive. And Pessimists Archive, is it's a show that's about how people have resisted things, new things, new technologies, new inventions, when they came out, how they've been received, how they've been resisted then, or how we resist new iterations of similar things today. Case in point, I was just listening to a recent show called Scooters and Roller Skates, and it is a fascinating look at, you know, the e-scooters that are kind of mm -hmm. littering the sidewalks today. Mm -hmm. I have felt greatly annoyed by how they seem to be just kind of like placed haphazardly all over, littering the city sidewalks. But as the host of Pessimist Archive, Jason Pfeiffer, points out, to, to understand our reaction today, and not just ours, but the way that cities are dealing with them today all over the world, we really have to dial all the way back to the beginning of various forms of transportation and even to the origins of roads themselves. If you like the Bowery Boys, I really think that you would enjoy this kind of look at inventions and society's reactions to these inventions. One thing you'll see, Greg, is that this, the same things that we say today, the same sort of negative reactions we have are the same things that people said hundreds or even thousands of years ago. 
So check it out. It's Pessimists Archive. It's available wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, Greg, I just got back from getting a, a, a splash more apple cider, and uh-huh. it it looks like Liza Spinelli over here has been eating your peeps and your donut. <laughs> well, you know, I'm just as confused as you are. Anyway, we have we have half a box of peeps left, though, to entertain you for our third story, Tom. Now, we're actually going to go back to Fifth Avenue. We're going to 1 East 62nd Street. Built in the early 1900s, it's right off of 5th Avenue, close to Central Park. This house was built to be next to the most influential and wealthiest people in New York, in New York high society. Folks that were so commanding of attention, it seems that one society maven, in particular, refuses to leave the neighborhood. For the name of this story, Tom, is The Portrait of Mrs. Spencer. Sounds expensive. What do we know about her or the house? Explain. Well, the house. Let's start with the house. It was built in 1903 for an extremely rich family, the family of John R. Drexel, son of a major Philadelphia banker, Anthony Drexel. This was a 40-room house with a private ballroom on the top floor, two salons, and a beautiful library on the ground floor. Now, being Francophiles here... The, the Drexels, this house, inside of it, the interiors were beautiful, rich in ornate French paneling and decorative detail. Now, it was from here that John's wife, Alex Drexel, would be a bit of a social climber. As it was here that she could entertain in that beautiful ballroom, show off this lavish house, and of course marry off her daughter to some wealthy man here in high society. There were there were dozens of them walking the streets here. Did she succeed? Unfortunately, in 1919, the Drexel daughter eloped with a man of no means, but probably a man she loved. Well, this was too much for John and Alice to bear, so they actually moved to Paris, sold off this house here at 1 East 62nd Street, and then in the 20th century was, like so many other townhouses during this period, was portioned off into smaller apartments. So the Drexels moved out in 1919. Their house was subdivided. Any notable names from the 20th century move in? Well, most notably, in 1959... Ernest Hemingway lived on the second floor. It was here that he set up an office. This would be his final apartment that he would rent in New York for just two years later in 1961. He would kill himself in Ketchum, Idaho. Oh, so is is this a story of Hemingway's ghost? We do love... We do love a famous ghost. A good literary ghost. Well, it is not Hemingway's ghost that we will be discussing, but we are not done with famous names here, Tom. I want to turn our attention now to the top three floors, including the penthouse of the former Drexel house here. Again, as I said, it had been chopped into smaller units with much of that French finery stripped away. But in 1988, a tenant moved in who actually yearned to return this building back to that initial French glory. And that tenant's name 
is Joan Rivers. Joan Rivers? I did not see Joan Rivers appearing in a in a Bowery Boys Ghost Stories episode. No, yeah. And in the same home as Ernest Hemingway. That's yes, amazing. She, yeah, I mean, she lived many decades later upstairs. Now, we talked about Joan Rivers uh, last year in our New York comedy show. That's right. But we did not get to her 1980s career. We talked about her early life. The 1980s for her was very tumultuous. She fell in love with this penthouse. She purchased this penthouse because she wanted to create a glamorous oasis for herself. She, she moved back to New York from L.A. and she wanted to pour all of her resources into somewhere she could feel really comfortable. Now, when she first viewed these rooms here mm-hmm. at 1 East 62nd Street, she described it, quote, it was now a broken down warren of cloakrooms, maids' rooms, and musicians' changing rooms, and then vast spaces of no use whatsoever. It had been on the market for two and a half years without one bid, and by now plaster was falling from the walls, the floor was coming up, there was major water damage. It sounds like Joan really needed to give it a facelift. She would eventually create an extremely luxurious and palatial home here for herself with beautiful crystal chandeliers, antique columns. This place had gilded walls, this triumphant staircase, which you could just imagine Joan Rivers strolling down the staircase to greet visitors. 100% pure fabulousness. (laughs) I wouldn't describe anything that you've said yet, Greg, as spooky. No, no, not at all. It's an it's an odd place to start a ghost story, but it seems that Joan did not move into an unoccupied apartment for something or someone was awaiting her here. Now, very early on, right when she acquired the property, but no work had been done before she moved in, Joan began declaring that her new apartment felt wrong that it was filled with unnerving energy, and that the energy was actually, at first, it disrupted her plans to to do any renovation at all. So in this beautiful private ballroom, workmen began clearing away decades of paint and wallpaper and returning these rooms back to this original French paneling that was so beautiful in the house. Well, as the workers were conducting their business here, they began experiencing odd little mishaps and disturbing little incidents. Things being moved around, things going missing. Well, one very hot August evening, Joan decided to check in on things here. She was very excited. She couldn't wait to move in. So she comes in one night and she has her little dog with her, our small dog companion. She gets off the elevator to go into the apartment and to go into this ballroom. But her dog refused to even pass through the doorway, just kind of stopped there, refused to move. Well, Joan didn't know what was happening here, so she just stepped inside and stepped into the room here and experienced an unbearable freezing. It was it was so chilly. Keep in mind, this was a hot August evening, and it was like bone cold inside of here. And in the dark, as she was in the room, where there were no lights here, it was just the lights from outside, from cars passing, she could make out what just looked like very, very hastily written graffiti on the wall, scrawled, that seemed to kind of fade in and fade out. 
Well, of course, this was extremely strange, as you could imagine. So she went back to the elevator. She scooped up her dog. And she mentioned these strange events to the elevator operator, who just nodded and said to her, Oh, I guess Mrs. Spencer is back. Who was Mrs. Spencer? Well, Mrs. Spencer is the name that they have given the spirit that lives at 1 East 62nd Street. Now, according to building lore, Mrs. Spencer is the niece of J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan, the financier, one of the richest men who ever lived. This was his niece? There are many Spencers actually in the Morgan clan, so we don't, we're not really sure which niece she is. This was a spirit that has been floating around and seen in this building long before Joan got here and had earned this nickname Mrs. Spencer. Perhaps a former resident began calling her that and the name just stuck. But you said she's been there for a while. Does she only hang out and haunt Joan's penthouse apartment or other places in the building? Yeah, she actually has been seen in many apartments, which leads one to believe that she may have lived here when the house was one complete family abode, for she had this certain freedom to go between floors. Uh, Joan Rivers reported one of her neighbors had an ornate chandelier that was decorated with baby cherubs that were holding the light bulbs. Well, one evening when the neighbors returned home, they returned to discover that the heads from the chandelier had been torn off and thrown onto the floor. Another neighbor had witnessed two people, a couple, in fine evening dress. Like they were going to a costume party of some kind, a turn-of-the-century soiree of some kind. The neighbor noticed these two people marching down the steps, not a care in the world, not paying attention to anything. And then they just simply disappeared. So spirits, and perhaps all associated with this Mrs. Spencer, have been witnessed by many other people, and not just Joan. Did Joan do anything about about this ghost? Or did Joan just resign herself to living with Mrs. Spencer? Well, at first, she actually did attempt to contact some kind of an expert familiar with supernatural matters. She didn't call in Hans Holzer, did she? Hans Holzer would have been much too commonplace for Joan Rivers. She called in a voodoo priestess, a voodoo priestess named Sally Ann Glassman, who performed a ritual here in the ballroom that for a while cleared the apartment of any ghostly presence. So Joan hired a voodoo priestess to to clear away these odd energies? Yeah, to cleanse the apartment. And cleanse she did? Well, it was okay for a while. But then slowly over time, Miss Spencer would again make her presence known here in Joan Rivers' apartment. And it might have been a re- turn to this negativity and this coldness had it not been for something that was found in the basement of the building. Something that was hidden in the drywall in the basement of the building. Many months following this voodoo cleansing experience. Nancy Drew mystery, Greg. What in the world was found inside the basement drywall? 
Well, it was a framed oil painting of an unidentified woman. Well, Joan believed that this oil painting was that of Mrs. Mrs. Spencer. Spencer. Yes. Was it? Well, she thought that if this was her, they should hang it up in the lobby of the building. In addition, the voodoo priestess told Joan that she felt that Mrs. Spencer also liked to see flowers in the ballroom. So in the months following this kind of return of Mrs. Spencer, Joan hung up the oil painting in the lobby and kept fresh flowers at all times in her ballroom. And although Mrs. Spencer never left the house here at 1 East 62nd Street, Joan Rivers was finally at peace with her. Or rather, they were at peace with each other. And when did Joan pass away? She, uh, she died five years ago. Can you believe that? On September 4th, 2014. Wow. We, of course, are huge Joan Rivers fans. We saw her perform live. Mm-hmm. It was and wonderful. I can't, yeah, I can't believe it really was five years ago because she died just a few months after we saw her. This apartment, by the way, after her death, went on the market in 2015 and was purchased by Prince Mohammed bin Fahd of Saudi Arabia, who I saw some reports saying that he gutted the insides again and maybe thought Uh-oh. it was too ornate. But then I read some other things that said that he kept some of that restoration. Well, I hope for his sake that he's kept flowers in the ballroom. Well, for my final story, we're going to return to old New York, and we're going to go downtown to a neighborhood that we call today NoHo. We're going to be visiting an elegant federal-style townhouse that was constructed in the 1830s and last decorated in the 1850s. That's right last decorated in the 1850s, because this is a home where hardly a thing has changed in almost 170 years, including one of its residents. For this is the tale of Gertrude is Happiest at Home. Now, in that very first story, I talked about a townhouse in the 1850s. Right the one with the green hand? The green hand, yes. And that neighborhood was becoming fashionable around that period. But this is further south mm-hmm. and two decades before that. That's right. We're going from Nomad to Noho. And we are heading now to 29 East 4th Street. It's between Lafayette and Bowery to drop in on the Treadwell family. Father Seabury Treadwell bought this lovely brick home in the mid-1830s, and they would live here with their eight children and their four servants and various other relatives passing through. Well, this sounds beautiful. What I'm a little confused by, though, is you said it was last decorated Mm -hmm. in the 1850s. What do you mean? Well, let me explain. Father Seabury Treadwell died here in 1865, Uh, but his children, many of them, continued living in the home for a very long time, And they changed very little about the home's appearance and decoration. One of his youngest daughters, Gertrude, was born here in 1840 and would live here her entire life. And in fact, starting in 1909, when all of her siblings had died off, she would be living here alone in the home for another couple of decades. And over the course of her life, she would watch the neighborhood change dramatically 
all about her. She'd see it start out as this elegant place during her youth, and it, she'd see it sort of fall from grace as it becomes a kind of extension of the seedy Bowery district. Throughout the 19-teens, the 1920s, the city would roar. And, of course, things would crash into the 1930s. And yet here, inside this house, Gertrude changed nothing. She kept it almost exactly as it had been in the mid-1800s. And the house is really only preserved because after she died in 1933... It opened just a few years later as the Merchant's House Museum and literally provides today this kind of time capsule. You walk in and you are transported to the 1850s. Now, some of you may be experiencing deja vu if you're familiar with our back catalog of ghost stories because we have talked about this before. Yes, we have. We have talked about the ghosts of Gertrude Treadwell. Yeah, that's right. Because another thing that hasn't really changed in this house is... Gertrude herself, or her spirit at least, because strange experiences have been reported by employees, by volunteers and visitors to the Merchant's House since it opened as a museum in the 1930s. Since that time, people have been really sort of wondering, what is Gertrude up to? And so, Greg, I thought that we could perhaps visit the Merchant's House in order to learn about the home tour the rooms a little bit, and to get to know Gertrude just a little bit better. Are you suggesting that we record the rest of this show in a haunted house? A haunted house in NoHo. Let's go and meet up with Carl Raymond, who is one of the Merchant House's docents, and who will lead us around and take us to some of the spookiest spots in this 19th century home. Well, Greg, we have arrived on 4th Street between Lafayette and Bowery, and we're, and we're heading to number 29, which is the Merchant's House Museum. Now, it's a house you can see as you're walking down the street, because it is one of the oldest houses, and it's extremely well-preserved. Right. It's a Federalist-style, three-story brick building with a stone staircase that is flanked by intricate wrought iron railing. And hanging on the door is a black wreath or a wreath wrapped in black material, signifying that something has happened to the family. Let's head up the stairs and meet up with Carl Raymond, who's going to show us around the merchant's house. Greg, do you want to knock at the door? Hello. Good morning. It's the Barry Boys. <laughs> it's Tom and Greg. Welcome to the Merchant's House Museum. Well, Come hello. on in. Welcome. Hi, Carl. Hi, Carl. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you so much for inviting us to the Treadwell's house. We're heading through the heavy yellow wooden doorway. When you entered a 19th century house, the whole foyer was an important part of the experience of coming to visit someone in a house. You didn't immediately get into the fancy rooms, the parlor. You had to come into this foyer for a little bit, and a servant would have greeted you. You would have presented your calling card just to see if Mrs. Treadwell was at home. So this is a sort of entry hallway. 
Well, that's right. The image that I use a lot is a 19th century house was often constructed like a theater, meaning that you had onstage spaces and you had backstage spaces, depending on what you wanted to show to whoever was coming to your door. If it was family and servants, you would have come in through another door under the staircase. But what you just did is you came through sort of the grand ceremonial entrance that would be reserved for visitors to the house. Now, you'll notice that we're in this long, fairly narrow um, hallway that's not particularly decorated with anything. This was about revealing the house slowly. When you think about our apartments now, you open the door and you're off and right in the living room. That wasn't the way it was in the 19th century. The whole name of the game was to get over here into the parlor behind this closed door. So if we were lucky enough to be allowed past this point, we would walk into the, the parlor. Let's do it right now. Our are we allowed? It's dark Well, I in think there. you two have actually made it under the velvet rope of the house, and I would be happy to take you into the parlor. Okay, we're, we're going through a doorway into a grand parlor. It's kind of hard to see what's going on in here because it's so, it's so dark. There's some candles on a wooden mantelpiece. So there's a fire, and oh my goodness, on the left. Do you uh, see what I see, Greg? Yes, that would actually be a coffin covered with beautiful flowers. It's, it's very dark and moody in here. There are several chairs arrayed in front of it and beautiful couches and divans on either side with a piano. This, this is not how the room normally looks. You've come to the house at a very special time. The patriarch Seabury Treadwell of the house, he died in March of 1865. And every year during the month of October, we recreate what the house would have looked like during his funeral and what would have led up to the funeral. So you're actually seeing a house in mourning. And what's interesting about that, life and death was so close to people in the 19th century. We don't think about that today because of our modern medicine. In fact, if you look at the top of the room, you'll see the original plaster from 1832, and the design in the middle is called egg and dart, and you see the shape of the egg next to the dart, and that represented life and death. So even in people's living spaces, they were constantly reminded of that. Obviously today, most people do not host funeral ceremonies in their houses, but back in the day, it was a little bit more of a traditional custom, I guess, for people of a certain means. Well, it was. When we think of being sick and having to go to a hospital, that didn't happen. Being cared for when you were sick happened in the home. The doctor came to you, and when, unfortunately, you passed away, all of the funeral rites occurred in the home as well, as, frankly, so did did weddings oftentimes. But here, after someone died, the body would be prepared by an undertaker, brought down here to the parlor, just as you see it today. There would have been a visiting period of several days. And remember, time was really of the essence. These bodies were not preserved. And one grisly little detail, often people would look for signs of decay in a body to make sure that they were actually dead. Well, Carl, could you actually take us to this next room? So we, if you we walk past the columns, there's another huge room, which I believe is the dining room, but it is very lavishly decorated as well. And even a little bit macabre here because we have a, a, the mannequin of a woman dressed in black. That gown came from Treadwell's wardrobe collection? 
when George Chapman, who was one of the descendants of the Treadwells, actually came to the house um, after the death of Gertrude Treadwell, he found so many of the original furnishings still here in exactly the places they were, of course, when uh, the family uh, lived here. But one of the extraordinary things was he found a collection of dresses. There were 39 of them that went back to the 1820s. What you're seeing is an actual dress worn by one of the Treadwell family members in the room where it was worn, and that's an extraordinary bit of bringing the past and the present very close together here. The 19th century, uh, particularly the 19th century before the Civil War. But of course, this is our ghost story show, and it does seem that Gertrude was not afraid of living in the past. Had there been any supernatural events, suggestions that have occurred or taken place in these two rooms? Because it certainly looks like there could be. The Merchant's House Museum has been called actually Manhattan's most haunted house. Now, one can choose to believe what one chooses to believe, but I can actually tell you there are some things that have actually happened to me. Now, Gertrude, we know, loved her life here. We certainly believe that she did. And some people say she really never left when she died in 1933. You'll see right here this beautiful piano, which was, which was bought for the girls, the daughters, in the 1840s, because, of course, you had to entertain. Um, it was live entertainment at the time, and it was also a wonderful way to get a husband by playing and singing, or at least that's what it seemed then. But Gertrude loved to play the piano. And over the years, people have commented on hearing piano music throughout the rooms, including me. When I was learning the tour here as a tour guide back in 2012, I was downstairs following a guide, rapidly taking notes, and I heard this beautiful piano music, and I thought, that's wonderful. Maybe they're doing a little concert in the afternoon upstairs. I'm not sure. I came back when we got here only to find that the piano at the time had not been restored and was unplayable. Did you report that story? Do, do people in general report stories when they, when they experience something supernatural in the, in the merchant's house? Well, I did talk about it. I was a little nervous. I thought it was the only thing, you know, did it really only happen to me? Only to discover that's a fairly common occurrence, people hearing piano music um, throughout the house, and it's really gone on for years. Also, come over here. I want to show you the stairs. Come here. So here you can see the staircase going up to the second floor, and you see that window at the top of the stairs. That, along with that very dim gas light, would have been the only light in this hallway. There seems to be some kind of concentration of energy at the top of the stairs, perhaps Gertrude or her mother looking out into the yard behind the house. We really don't know, but there's something about that. In fact, only a few years ago, one of my colleagues here at the merchant's house was sitting on the stairs and actually looked up and saw Gertrude's sister leaning over the stairs. So again, it's not only um, apparitions of Gertrude that appear in the house, but also other members of the family as well. But wait, there's even more. I haven't even taken you to the most haunted room in arguably the most haunted house here in Manhattan. Will you come with me? Please. So would you say this is one of the most haunted rooms in New York City? Oh, absolutely. Finally, Greg. Carl is leading us up the wooden staircase, past the window, see if we feel any spirits. Step up to the second floor, past another mannequin at the end of the hallway. 
So we've ended up in Eliza Treadwell's bedroom. This room is dominated by this beautiful carved wooden bed with ornate um, carvings at the top, the drapery here. This was where Gertrude was born in that bed, in that very space in 1840. The beds have never moved. We know that because of the soft wooden floor and the indentations the bed um, has made here. There have been experiences, paranormal experiences, felt in this room? Oh, there have. There's been some examples of the electronic voice phenomena recorded in this room, but also various photographers that have come in to take photographs have found things like orbs, these little bits of light on their film, or columns of light that are just completely unexplained. There's no reason for them to be there in the film. There's nothing wrong with the camera. Different photographers at different times have captured these very same images on their film, and we have no idea why. So we've heard that the Treadwells have been making appearances to visitors here at the, at the Merchant's House. Do they also ever, you know, act up in that way that the supernatural spirits sometimes act up and actually do things? Oh, they certainly can. You know, we felt that the family really loved their house the way it was as, as they knew it, and anytime any construction or painting or, or restoration is done, there seemed to be an uptick in occurrences. And one really I found extraordinary. It was a Saturday morning. The house had not opened yet. The bookkeeper came to the executive offices upstairs, opened the door, and found it was a set of three glass nesting bowls that were on the center of a table, upended and smashed on the center of the carpet. I don't mean just broken as if they'd slipped. I mean smashed on the carpet, and it was really kind of a chilling example of somebody wasn't very happy, I guess. We don't know. And they took it straight to the top, to the executive director's office. Well, yes. So is this the actual bedroom where Gertrude died in 1933? No, this was where she was born, but let me take you to the room just less than 100 feet away where she died all those years later. Follow me. Oh my God! Okay, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, you you could have warned us that there is actually a we're passing through a, a a bedroom and there is a there's a man lying in a bed. This is Seabury's bedroom. Is a very lifelike body with his arms crossed in front of him. Uh, he doesn't look very lifelike to me, Greg. Well, that's Seabury, and he is dead. Or at least that is an image of what he would have looked like after he died in his bed. But yes, that is the bed, the exact bed where he died in 1865. It is also exactly the same bed that Gertrude died in in 1933. So it's extraordinary that the bed where she was born and the bed where she died is so incredibly close to each other. And she died in the same bed that her father died in all those years uh, before. But this was the room that Gertrude lived in at the very end of her life. Well, thank you, Carl, and thank you to the Merchant's House for showing us around and sharing these spooky and supernatural tales with us. Oh, you're welcome. But before you go, there's one more story I'd like to share with you because it's something that happened to me. 
I was working here on a Saturday. I was the site manager for the day, checking in people for tours. And the house had closed, and I was sitting downstairs, counting the money and doing the accounting for the day. And interestingly, that often also seems to be a time when things happen in the house. But I didn't really think about that at the time. But I had to close up the rooms, and I went downstairs to the kitchen where we were, to the cold pantry right next door, which doubles as our coat room. And I closed it up and bolted the windows and came back upstairs to get my things ready to go and realized, of course, I'd left my coat down on a coat hook. So I went downstairs only to find that that entire room was completely open. Everything was unbolted. It was if I'd never touched it. Isn't that interesting? And you were alone in the house at this time. Well, I think I was alone in the house. It seems as if Gertrude maybe wasn't ready for me to leave. So we often say here, we invite everyone to come and visit because what we like to say is, come and visit. Someone is probably going to be at home. And we would like to thank everybody at the Merchant's House Museum for taking the time to show us around. And remember that throughout October, and actually throughout the rest of the year too, the Merchant's House holds candlelight ghost tours in the house. And they are really quite a spooky way to get close to this home's incredible history. So in October, or really throughout the year, you can visit merchantshouse.org to learn more and to book a tour. But here's the thing that I I think we need to be very frank about Mm -hmm. right now with our listeners. And that is that we actually had a ghost experience in the house. So this is not just play here. Yeah, there's a big heavy door that, that we had recorded the sound of just for dramatic purposes. Well, I had reached to open the door and it wouldn't open. It wouldn't open at all. And so then... You tried to open the door. No, it wasn't budging. And we thought it was locked in some special way that only the docents of the merchant's house could actually unlock. Like a a security door or something. Yeah, But it turns out it, it wasn't actually locked at all. Carl actually went over and just casually opened it. And he turned to us and said, That has never happened before. That was Gertrude. Join us on our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where we'll have some images from our visit to the Merchant House and to the three other places that we visited on this show. A huge thank you to our patrons who have joined us on Patreon.com slash BoweryBoys. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BoweryBoys. It is because of your small monthly contributions that we are able to produce the Bowery Boys full-time. We would not have this show without you. Thank you so much. Head over to Patreon slash Bowery Boys to find out how you can join the rest of the group. And as a thank you, receive access to our special patron-only audio feed. We do a special Bowery Boys movie club. We have a new episode of the Movie Club for you coming up very shortly. Tom, why don't we reveal the movie that we're doing this month for the Bowery Boys Movie Club? Go for it. That movie is Moonstruck with Cher and Nicolas Cage. And filmed partially on the streets of Brooklyn Heights. That's not all the bonus 
audio you're getting for you'll also receive a live recording of our live show at Joe's Pub, which we are performing at the end of the month this year at Joe's Pub at the Public Theater. The tickets are sold out. Hopefully some of you will be at that show. And if you are... Please come dressed in a costume if you'd like to. We would appreciate that. We would love to. And also stick around afterwards and say hello. And bonus points if you come dressed as any of the characters in this year's episode, (laughs) including Mrs. Spencer. I want to see at least one Mrs. Spencer. And the audio for that show will be available exclusively to those who support us on Patreon. People like Bruce Y, Craig N, and Brad W from Manhattan, Bob S from Florida, Andrew M. from Massachusetts, Art S. from New York State, Charles W. from Washington, and Dale B. from California. And Mrs. S. from East 62nd Street. (laughs) Maybe, do we have any ghosts as Patreon supporters? (laughs) So thank you so much for joining us on these trips to New York's most haunted houses. And a special jazz hand from Liza Spinelli here. (laughs) Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. (laughs) 